Praise God. Well, I got some questions. I was thinking of doing a question and answer. I try to do Q&A every so many months. We haven't done one for a while. And I had a brother that sat down with me after service Sunday. Uh, and I get a lot of people coming afterwards, which is great. And sometimes there's Bible questions. He had a few. And he couldn't even remember all of them, he said. And I said, hey, you mind if I take a couple of them? And, uh, you know, because uh, I said, you know what we could do is we just get together and go over your questions. But he lives kind of far away, you know. So I said, you know what? I've been meaning to do a Q&A session. Let me take a couple of your questions and, and, and talk about them on a Wednesday night. And then uh, uh, Chad sent me more questions today. Uh, we get a lot of questions that come in on our, on our podcast program, especially when we do our, the live program. And we ask for questions, and they come in, and we answer them as much and as best as we can during our live program, usually at the tail end of that. And we just have a great time. And a lot of times we'll be answering them, and, and chat will be answering a lot text will, in text for those who are, you know, checking out the live program and are texting. And I'll answer them verbally. Uh, Chad will help with that as well. But uh, so I said, hey, Chad, do you have any questions that have gone unanswered, you know? He sent me some of those. So a lot of times when I do Q&A, we'll pass the mic around too. And we'll just do it live right here as well. That's how we usually do it. But I want to get to those questions if we have some more time uh, after this, uh, after I get through these. I'll look at the clock if we have time. <laughs> because I only have nine pages, but you know, you never know how long a page even goes, right? So uh, we'll see how long this takes. Uh, so the first question, and these are some great questions. This was Edwin from uh, Blessed Hope Chapel. And he's dealing with a situation where there's a woman pastor, and, uh, and, he wants, and he's dealing with whether that's biblical or not, and his conversations that are going on with the people involved. And he says that, they're, that they seem to make an excuse that even if it's not biblical, it's still warranted. And I'll give you the excuse in a, in a minute. And, but first of all, if go to 1 Timothy 2.9. Uh, so are we here to see what Joe has to say or what the Word has to say? The Word has to say, because we test everything, including Pastor Joe, by the Word of God. Amen? And if he doesn't speak according to the Word, we go with the Word of God. We don't even think about it. We have to go with God's Word. I always say, test what I say. Amen? In fact, I encourage you to test me probably more than anybody and anything else, because I'm the one, I'm your pastor, you know? So you should make sure what I'm saying is scriptural, and that's why we go to the Scripture, uh, because... I'm the last, you know, I don't want to be at, at, at wrong at all because I have a stricter judgment than people that don't pastor, that don't teach. So the Bible says a wicked man or foolish man uh, does not accept a rebuke, but a wise man accepts a rebuke. So I, I want to make sure that what we're saying is all scriptural uh, because I'm going to stand before God and make sure that I pointed you to the, to the historical Jesus of Holy Scripture. Amen. And and giving you the promises and warnings, the goodness, preach both the goodness and the severity of God. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, when you get there, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, it's quite interesting because Paul makes it very clear. This was not even a debated issue until modern times. Wouldn't you know it uh, in regard to women pastors? Uh, I always say that God's given men roles. He's given females roles. Amen. Uh, and... Women, men, men are wrong. And there's a lot of men right now. Hundreds of thousands of men. Perhaps millions. I don't know if it's that high. Hopefully not. Just saying hundreds of thousands breaks my heart. Of men that are trying to be women. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, 
not to be deceived, for neither fornicators or adulterers or drunkards or revilers or extortioners, homosexuals, effeminate, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the word effeminate there is a word that refers to men who seek to be like women, who uh, Philo, the uh, Jewish uh, historian and, uh, from Alexandria, uh, used that same word that's translated effeminate there of men who would put perfume on their bodies and who would, uh, not cologne, but, you know, women's type perfumes and, and would shave themselves and try to be like women. Uh, and Nero, who was the emperor who beheaded the apostle Paul, uh, had a young male that he had castrated and made him his wife. Uh, real sick situation there. Uh, so there was wickedness like that going on way back then. And Paul uses that word of those who will not inherit God's kingdom. It says in Deuteronomy that man is not supposed to put on that which pertains to a woman, and a woman is not supposed to put on that which pertains to a man. This is both Old and New Testament, folks. Okay? So uh, men are trying to be women now, and women are trying to usurp men's roles. It's wrong. Men long for the day, certain men long for the day where they can experience childbirth. Well, it's not, that's not biblical, okay? Now, they are saying there's men having, there's men that are having babies now. They're saying that because it's women that are claimed to be men. Well, I'm a man now. And it's just all just so messed up. And it's so sad. Well, men shouldn't be seeking women's roles and women should not be seeking the roles of men. And God has called men to uh, be pastors, you know? Jesus didn't have six women and six men as apostles. He picked 12 men for apostles, right? There's a reason. And uh, that kind of spiritual leadership at that level was called to be men. Uh, uh, and at the same time, women can do all kinds of functions. Some believe, okay, women aren't to lead at all. They're not to be entrepreneurs. They're not to go outside the home and so forth. That's not scriptural either. Look at the Proverbs chapter 31 woman, right? She goes out and buys a piece of land and sells it, right? She's a realtor. <laughs> so, that's, that's, so we always go with the Bible. The Bible is really cool, amen? God made men and women differently, but they complement each other. We call it complementarianism, amen? Now, but when you go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul makes it really clear. And keep in mind, he's right. this is one of what's called the pastoral epistles. He's writing to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, as how Timothy is to conduct the church, how he's to lead the fellowship. And in 1 Timothy 2.9, he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and, and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Now, some will use the couple verses I just read and say, women can't do anything with their hair, and they, have, and they just, you know, they can't wear any jewelry and so forth. I don't think he's saying that because this is a Hebrew idiom. In fact, I'm positive he's not saying that because I can show you he's not speaking in the absolute sense, but he's speaking in the spirit of that the emphasis of the woman should not be the outward adornment. And the reason is I can show you where in the, in the scriptures where there's a wedding and the, 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 the bride in the book of Psalms is all decked out and she's just gorgeous. And she's a picture of the bride of Christ, New Jerusalem later, you know. Uh, and also, when you go to First Timothy, First Peter, when he talks about uh, not the you know the hair and the jewelry and so forth, he also says something else. He says, "And not the putting on of dresses." And some say, "Well, can you not wear dresses then?" Well, what's the he he Greek word there? You know what it means? It literally means clothes. 
So those that take that literally, that you can't wear, that would mean we're supposed to come to church naked. So if it's saying you can't wear any jewelry or a woman can't braid her hair at all, it's also saying you have to go to church naked. I, I've, I've, talk, I've talked to people on this issue that a brother that used that verse, a Mennonite brother, who felt that you can only dress, he dressed plain clothes and everything, he meant well, but I said, you realize what you're saying if you take it to mean, well, you know, uh, he understood. But uh, the scripture is emphasizing modesty. There's something being said here, amen? And he's talking about how modesty is very important. Verse 12, or verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to what? Teach or what? Or exercise authority. Not that she can't teach other women. She's called Titus chapter 2. Women are supposed to teach women, supposed to teach children. She don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over what? A man. But to remain quiet. And that's talking about the pastoral role. The role of an elder or a pastor. In scripture, uh, we believe a pastor and an elder are pretty much the same. They are the same. Uh, some, some denominations make a distinction between the pastor and the elder. I believe there's differences in some elders. It talks about elders that lead well, elders that teach, and so forth, indicating not every elder does the same thing. We understand that as well. But uh, So what's interesting here is he's making sure that women are not moving into the place of authority over the men. And then he gives a couple reasons. Verse 12, but I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over men, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. First he used the order of creation to establish leadership. And then in verse 14 he says, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived, in the, in the Greek it's quite deceived, very deceived, fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. That's not saying you have to have uh, women, uh, a child to be preserved. The Greek word means saved. But he's talking about women, and we don't have time to get into it all, but in 1 Timothy 5 and 6, if you read chapter 5, he's talking about unmarried women who become widows if they're young. He encourages them to remarry so they don't go aside after Satan and become idols. And uh, Because what happens is a young woman... Uh, you know, that's got a lot of freedom on her hands and she's a young widow with a lot of energy still, she could get in trouble, you know? And he says they become gossips and everything. Not that that's inevitable, but it was happening at the old church. So he encouraged them to get married and have children. Why? Because if, if, if Eve had been ch- uh, chasing Adam, I'm sorry, Adam. If Eve had been chasing, you know, Seth and Cain around, she wouldn't have had time to talk to the devil, right? But uh, she was dialoguing with the devil and she fell into transgression. And, uh, and bringing up ch- children in really helps you. How many women notice that, you know, one of the reasons that, one of the things that got you close to the Lord was your children. <laughs> I see some heads bobbing up and down. How many, how many women here could say their prayer life got stronger because of ch- their children? Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I'll tell you, man, I have kids and grandkids, and they're so good for my prayer life. Because, man, you know, my kids, are, I don't have to pray quite as much for them. I still do pray a lot for them, but now I pray for my grandchildren. Wow, Lord, this one's just like me when I was a kid. Anybody know who I'm talking about? <laughs> it's a big, big grin on my family's, uh, including Chad's face, you know. Uh, but hey, God ended up you know, doing, a good, doing, doing good to me and being merciful. But it's important to be praying, Amen. 
praying for our children. We need to pray, 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 man. Uh, and then uh, chapter 3, because there's no chapter breaks, so Paul would just keep on writing. What did he say? It's a trustworthy statement. If any what? Did it say anyone or any what? Any man. In the Greek, it's man as well. Anthropos, I believe. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, that means elder or pastor, it's a what? Fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the what? Husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So notice the context. I wish chapter 3 just didn't come up yet. The, the number 3. I wish they would just let it continue to roll because it's very clear he's talking about the role of a, a man and a woman in leadership in a church. It's as clear as day. Now, Edwin asked, you know, they, he says this church uses the excuse that Deborah was a judge. And since she was a judge, and she stuck, stuck, stood up when Balak, you know, or I'm sorry, Barak, Balak, Barak, the king, uh, Barak Hussein Obama, no, that's a different one, you know. When Barak was too afraid to go out to war, uh, unless she went with him, she must have been a pretty tough lady, right? Uh, and therefore, since, since Deborah stood up, that means in certain situations, women can become pastors. And... Uh, and they could step up. And, what if, and if there's no man that's you know, qualified, then the woman should step up and take uh, the pastoral role. Uh, there's, some, that, there's some problems with that. First of all, where does it say that in the New Testament regarding the pastoral role? Also, I want to ask this question, is where in Scripture does it ever say that a woman, where was it ever written in Scripture that a woman could not be a judge? I don't know of any Scripture. It wasn't a violation of Scripture. Yeah, he wimped out, but she wasn't violating the Word of God. It's a violation of the Word of God and puts our opinions above God's Word. And man, if you fear the Lord, you don't go that route. Amen? Amen. You know? And uh, what if you guys, you know, let's say, you know, uh, my wife went on to be with the Lord and, and then I got stuck on some island somewhere and I was stuck, and I came back, and I said, hey, you guys, I miss you guys so much, you know. Uh, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm back, praise God. You know, that was a weird storm. We got caught on that island. Oh, and by the way, I want you to meet my husband. And, but then you, you say, Joe, that's not biblical. But then I tell you, but there were no women on the island. There are no women on the island, so it makes sense that since there was no women on the island, I could marry this man. Steve, what are you doing back there? Steve's laughing, shaking his head. <laughs> Steve would like, I love you, Joe, but that would go. <laughs> you know, that's not going to work. Now, why would you say no if I said, hey, I want to resume my pastorship because I was lost at sea, and I want my buddy, man, he'll be, you know, he'll be a Steve's associate pastor, you know? What would you say to me? Come on. But, but enough, enough, repent and no, amen. You guys are well taught. <laughs> now what if I said wait there were no women on the island what would you say in response <laughs> calling the police <laughs> the God police <laughs> God forbid I even hate to stick thoughts like this in your mind but I'm trying to make my point you know why on what basis would you be able to say no 
on scriptural basis, right? Because I'm, I'm giving you some kind of scenario trying to persuade you that because of the scenario, you should feel sorry for the situation and you should say, hey, this was pragmatic. Here we are. You would just like, wrong. It's, it's unbiblical. Well, guess what? It's unbiblical for a woman to be a pastor. And I don't care if there's not a male in the church or not. You know? I mean, I care for the church, but I don't care for that excuse one iota because it's, an, it's not biblical. It's what counts as what's right in God's eyes. Amen? Amen. Now, uh, what, what kind of counsel would you give me? Let's say, let's say I was emailing you and for some, somehow my computer survived it and I'm on the island and I want to marry this man. And, but, and I say, there's no women on the island though. What are you going to tell me? What's, your, what's going to be your advice? Remain what? Remain what? Remain single. That's biblical. So what would your advice be to a, a church where, say, the pastor dies and there's only young kids because it's a, only 20 people at the church and, and maybe a couple young men or whatever and one that's not very learned. Would you say, oh, yeah, the woman should just become the pastor? No. You would, you would say you need to pray, amen, and seek the Lord. And the Bible says if we ask anything that is accordance to his, his will, we what? Have it, amen? So if it's God's will for that church to have a pastor, God will rise one up, amen? You don't go unbiblical on him. Then he's not going to answer your prayers because a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways and shall expect to receive nothing from the Lord, it says in the book of James. Amen? Okay. So, well, what if, there's a, what if there is one man and he knows the Bible really well at that church? But he's homosexual. Why not? Why would it be wrong to make him the pastor? Because it's what? It's unbiblical. Uh, or, or, yeah, he doesn't know the Bible that well. Amen. And if he does, he has knowledge. He doesn't have wisdom because he's not applying that knowledge, right? Amen. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't know the Bible very well at all. Uh, how can you teach the truth? When you're doing the opposite. Amen. So I, I, if, so, if, there's a, if there's a woman pastor to church, I don't even negotiate with people. I mean, it's between them and the Lord ultimately, their decision, because I can't make their decisions for them. But I'm like, don't walk, but run to the nearest exit. That's un, absolutely unbiblical. Just as if there was homosexual pastor in a church. I would say, uh-uh, that's just, the, the very structure of that church is unbiblical. And the scriptures say, you've been there. Okay, wow. Nice and loud because they can't hear you on live stream. You came here after that. He, he knew something was wrong when his wife stood up and he t- asked her to stop being the pastor. No, he didn't say that. <laughs> What's that? Say that last part. It's not biblical. And you left. Praise God. And that's awesome because, and these two, you guys, I've, I've, from the time you set foot in here, man, I saw that you guys love, love the Lord and his word, you know. So, and praise God. You know what happens? Those churches continue to suck in a lot of people, and, and this kind of doctrine proliferates because people don't take the stand you guys took. So, praise God. It's a feel-good church. Yeah, that's, 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 amen. And then you'll feel good for eternity now. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Real quick. Oh, go for it, bro. The works of the flesh are evident. And, and Galatians 5. In different uh, translations, they, they take out homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah, there's sensuality and sexu- homo- wild sexuality, parties. wild parties. Amen. It gives you, I think he lists 22 different things. 
Yeah, he lists 22 different things there. He says, and anything like these things, Paul says, will not inherit God's kingdom. That's serious stuff. Amen. So praise God. I think you guys are in good shape. Everybody's, nobody's fighting against the truth here, which is good. Although you pray for people, pray for these churches that are allowing these kinds of things, because this is running amok throughout the body of Christ right now. You have all kinds of things, weird things taking place. Uh, but we can't go by our feelings, man. We have to go by the Word of God. We're called not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So you don't stick up your finger and say, what are other churches doing? You know? And we have a good, fiery group of Jesus-loving believers here. It's our midweek study. It's great to see you guys. But I'd rather have two or three fiery people for Jesus that have the fire of God in their hearts, a love for Jesus in their heart, a love for his word, a love for the lost and for each other than, you know, hundreds that don't fear and love the Lord, you know? And I'm glad we have way more than two or three and we have a good, healthy fellowship here. But uh, this fellowship attracts people that love the truth. And that's awesome. I mean, Kevin comes from Arcadia, so forth. We get believers like that all the time. And so it's nice to know you're around people that love Jesus, amen? And you know people, the, the psalmist said, I'm a companion with all those who fear you. And man, you know who I love to be around the most? People that fear and love God. That's just, it's just beautiful. Next question is from Daniel Smith. And he says, uh, uh, I know the rapture is post-trib, but how do you explain this verse and the verses he gives? Uh, in Matthew 24, 30. Uh, if you can go there, go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 30. And... Uh, how do we explain this verse? And the interesting thing, he's not even really pursuing a, the context as far as the time of the rapture goes here. He's talking about, uh, he has a question in regard to this, which I thought was very interesting. It's something that's crossed my mind before that I never uh, thought too deeply about other than, you know, thought mm, maybe it's this or that. And I kind of give a maybe because there's not an exact scripture that comments on this situation. So it's a bit of conjecture, but it's wise, I think, conjecture uh, as far as the, the question goes. Uh, 24, 40. Uh, Jesus says in 24, 40 of Matthew, chapter 24, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Uh, therefore, he says, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So it's talking about the Lord's coming, and two people will be working in the field, one will be gone. Pfft. One will be left. Two will be laying in bed, one will be gone. One will be left. Uh, I was watching the news uh, recently, off and on, more than I typically watch the news. I usually get my news from the internet, but every once in a while I'll park myself in the... Uh, during an election or something like that, or a crisis or something, I'll park myself in front of the television set for a while to see what's going on. Like right now, the stuff with Hamas and you know Israel and stuff. So I was watching some of it, and the, the commercial breaks. I like to. I don't like to watch things real time. I like to watch them a little bit later than real time, so I can fast forward through commercials typically, so I don't waste my time. But I caught a couple times because I'm fast forwarding them. I see this really heavenly look and look like something based in the Bible, and I backed up. Oh, what's this commercial on? And then it was a, uh, it was you know the the great disappearance or something like that by David Jeremiah, uh, and it was like 
And it's about the pre-trib rapture and perfect timing to get the book out because everybody's concerned about the times going. It was like, I think, on Fox News. And they, they keep playing that commercial over and over again. It's like 31 reasons the rapture is going to happen when it does or something like that. And, and I'm watching that. I'm like, oh, man. And David Jeremiah, when he's right on, on issues, he's really good. When he's off, you know, on a couple different issues that I think are very significant, uh, it, it's sad, you know. And I've seen some of his stuff on, I think he wrote a book called The Great Escape, you know, that we don't have to go through the tribulation. I got that book years ago. I marked it up uh, because the pre-trib rapture view is a newer view. Uh, it had its birth around, around uh, in the early 1800s. We have a whole video called Left Behind or Let Astray out there uh, that you can check out online. I did a debate. We call it, it's called The Great Rapture Debate with Dr. Stoffer at Pikes Peak near Colorado Springs. Big old prophecy conference. They invited me to debate him. It's like a six-hour debate. A lot of people love that debate. It's on YouTube. We didn't hesitate to put it up. Okay, after the debate, it went really, really well because we had all kinds of scripture to go to, and I even had my claim. He give me just one clear scripture, you get ten thousand bucks, right? I've had that out for years. Obviously, he wasn't able to claim it. He didn't even try, you know, because he admitted I used one of his admissions during my debate. I always use admissions from pre-trib leaders that we don't have a clear scripture. Why? Well, I found a place where he said that. So I used that, so I knew he wasn't going to try, try to claim it. Uh, so it worked out really well. But uh, one of the verses, passages that's used a lot for the pre-trib rapture is, two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. You know, Two will be in their bed, one will be taken, one will be left. And Look, that's the pre-trib rapture. It's like, wait a minute, what does that say anything about timing? And what I like to say to my pre-trib friends is, get your hands off of our verses. What do I mean by that? Because when you go to Matthew chapter 24... Jesus is warning his apostles, the, early, the, the apostles of the early church, right? All about how they're going to face who? The Antichrist. Verse 15, just back up. When you see the abomination of desolation, stand in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee. If you're in Judea, flee. He says, when you see this, when you see that, when you, 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 he uses this, per, this personal plural pronoun of his apostles. And... And most of my pre-trib friends, when you show this to them, hey, Jesus is warning his apostles, they'll say, oh, Matthew 24 isn't for us. That's not for the church. They're Jews that he's talking to there. Well, yeah, they're Jews, but they're the leaders of the church. In chapter 16, verse 18, several chapters before this, eight or nine chapters before this, he says, you know, you know upon this rock, speaking of Peter's declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this rock I'll build my church, the gates of hell, will not prevail against. I'm going to build my church. Then in chapter 18, he gives church discipline, verses 15 through 18, you know. If, you know, if your brother sins against you and doesn't repent, you know, go to him privately. And if he doesn't repent, bring it before one or two. Still didn't repent, bring it before the church. They understood themselves that they were, if, if you don't want to believe they were leaving the church at that time, that called out group, if you don't want to call that the church yet, Jesus is referencing their followers and what he's doing as a church already. But let's say you're not. What did they have in mind? how they were to lead the church. Amen? And then he tells them after Matthew 24, a little bit later, he says, what I've taught you, you teach, you disciple, you teach others. Amen? And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And right here, this whole question is, what's the sign you're coming to the end of the age? And he brings them all the way to the end of the age, that is the second coming, after the tribulation. And then he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age as you reach the, your disciples. So it's real clear. But what I'm saying is, when, I sh when you go to pre-tribs and you start showing them Jesus is taking his apostles through tribulation, how they're going to face these things, they'll say, oh, that's not to them. But then they see a couple verses, 40, 41, and 42. Oh, this is all of a sudden, this is for the church, though. You can't do that. Get your hands off our verses. 
You said that's not for the church. You get my point? <laughs> anyway, uh, but the context here, when it speaks of his coming, right? Look at the verse we didn't read. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be at the coming of the, the Son of Man. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he used the flood. And when the flood came to wipe everybody out, that's when God took them in the boat. Then he uses Lot's wife, or I'm sorry, Lot, in, back in Luke, Leviticus 7, I'm sorry, Luke 17. And it says, just as it was in the days of Lot, when fire and brimstone came and just destroyed them, it'll be the same way on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, same day, man, the destruction came, picture of Armageddon, the end of the world, boom, that's when the rapture takes place. And he talks about two being here and one taken, one left, so forth. Same thing. But the context here, guys, back up. When he says, now if you look at verse 39, it ends with the word what? What's the, the coming of the Son of Man, right? right? Look at the end of verse 42. He's speaking of the day of your, the Lord's coming, right? Well, the question is, what coming is he talking about? Well, just back up. What coming are you talking about? Just back up. Look at verse 29. Or verse, we'll start at 27. Verse 26. It's a little more there. <laughs> so if they say to you, behold, he is, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Same language he uses a few verses later in verses 40 through 42. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures will gather. And you can go check out Revelation 19 there for the birds gathering for the supper of God at the end of the tribulation. Then verse 29. But immediately, what? Does it, say, does it say immediately before the tribulation? If it said immediately before the tribulation, I'd have to give 10,000 bucks to somebody. Because there would be that verse. But it doesn't. It says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels, hallelujah, with a great trumpet. We're going to be raptured at the last trumpet. Last trumpet couldn't happen before this, or this would not be a trumpet because it would have to be the last, because it, something before this couldn't be the last trumpet. And Paul says it will be at the last trumpet. At the rapture, that is 1 Corinthians 15. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, right, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And then you keep reading just a few verses later. He says, of that coming, one will be taken and one will be left, right? One will be taken, one will be left. So I think it's pretty, it's not pretty clear, it's crystal clear. Uh, now, well, how come people could look at this and just, because people don't want to go through it, you know? If my wife tells me, hey, you know what? You might be able to take the day off instead of go to the dentist today. I'm like, really? How can we work that out? You know? I mean, I want to, I want to know, you know? Uh, but I want truth, though. Amen. If she says, well, you know, I just thought we could go eat a bunch of candy and just skip it until next year, I'd say, ah, baby, that's probably not wise, you know? And she's not going to do that. She takes care of me really well. She'd kick my rear end and say, get to the dentist, you know? Uh, I'm playing. She wouldn't do that. But we need, we need, the Bible says to seek out the ancient ways. Amen? Yeah. You know, I love that verse, man. The ancient ways. I love it. It sounds so beautiful. You know, and the Bible says the last day they'll tickle your ears and tell you what you want to hear. And that sounds just so good that just you don't have to go through, you know, the, the tribulation. It's going to be a tough time. No, no kidding. 
So that's very, very important. So the context is really clearly the second coming. Now his question, I thought, I'm going to go there and people may be confused. Because uh, he starts off by saying he's a pro-stribber. His question, though, is uh, basically he says, uh, let me find, oh, how are two people, Daniel writes, working next to each other if one has the mark of the beast and the other doesn't? Or does this assume that neither, neither has the mark of uh, the beast, but one is saved? Now, I think your, his assumption is actually pretty good because although it's not definite for sure, because there's no scripture that comments as to why one is taken and one is left there. Uh, you have to go by the surrounding scriptures. And when you look at the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21, Matthew, Matthew 24, Mark 13, you'll see that it warns believers all the way up to the end to make sure they're right with Jesus. Now, we're warned about the mark of the beast, but there's other ways you could give in to getting drunk, Jesus said, where he cuts you in pieces in Matthew 24 right? Throws you with the hypocrites. Uh, uh, Luke 21, verses 34 through 36 says not to be overcome by the worries of this life, right? And with drunkenness and, and so forth. And uh, so there's a lot of warnings about the bridesmaids, right? Five fell asleep, right? We don't know that they, five had the mark of the beast. Maybe they didn't. And, well, how does that work? Because we talk about the mark of the beast being a worldwide thing for 42 months, but you have to keep in mind, not everybody will have, uh, you can't get the mark of the beast everywhere in 42 months. There's a lot of people that live off the grid. There's a lot of remote areas where they're not even buying or selling anyway. They're living off the land and so forth. Uh, and then there'll be the millennial period, right? There'll be further testing for certain people. Uh, but it's interesting when you think about this is it could be a situation where, as he mentions, uh, neither of them had the mark of the beast. Uh, and, but one was lost. One was saved. That, it could be that simple. Uh, the, the husband was saved and the wife was lost, or the wife was saved and the husband was lost, or they're two just guys working in the field together. You know, but one, uh, but also one could have the mark of the beast. You know, it could also be a husband that has the mark of the beast, but he's feeding his wife because he could buy or sell, but she refuses to take it, and he disagrees with her, and then she's raptured and he's not because he took the mark of the beast. There's all kinds of different scenarios. But a lot of, it'll probably be all the above and some, you know. There'll probably be a lot of people that'll be raptured that don't have the mark of the beast because they weren't under the Antichrist uh, direct authority to buy or sell. Because uh, how many people, so many people live off the grid today. Do you know that? And a lot of people that live off the grid just live off the grid sometimes because they're criminals. They go to remote places of the earth so they don't have to see anybody because they're wanted. And they may not take the mark of the beast, but if they don't, have, they don't turn to Jesus, right? They're not going to the rapture. Amen. So I think uh, the, the answer is probably uh, multiple reasons. But the main thing we need to do is make sure we're saved, amen? Make sure you're taken when he comes back, amen? And try to make sure your family's saved. Do everything you can, persuading them through the word, word of Christ, amen? Praying for your family members to come to know Jesus. And definitely avoid taking the mark of the beast. You know, don't fall into this thing. Well, maybe if I just, you know, I mean... The Left Behind series, the best-selling non-fiction, I should say fiction series, I think, I think before Harry Potter ever. But there was a lot of problems with that, not only the preacher rapture, you know. And I talked to Kirk Cameron, who starred in this, the, the movies. He came and visited our church a, a couple times, and, I, I, you know, he'd seen the video. And 
uh, or I'm sorry, turn up my message, and he's the le- he goes, I'm the left behind guy, Joe. He came to visit our church. He goes, but you know what? He goes, uh, I recognize, you know, from listening to your tapes and checking the scripture, it's not biblical. And I got, that's cool. He came out of it. Unfortunately, pray for him because he's gotten into some of the post-mill stuff now. You got to make sure, man, the road's narrow. It's not one way or the other. There's one way, right? And every other way is wrong. Amen? So, uh, but it's interesting when you think about it uh, that you have to make sure that you're on the straight and narrow and you need to pray for people. And even the Left Behind series, it has a guy named Chang, you know, I think his name's Chang. He takes the mark of the beast, but he's incoherent. He's on drugs. His dad, I think, drugs him and he gives the mark of the beast. And the point in the book is that, well, he didn't take it willingly, so he shouldn't be damned. But then that opens up questions. Can you take the mark of the beast and not be damned? Well, we would say, I think we'd all agree that the Lord wouldn't hold it against you if someone drugged you and you took it against your will. You didn't know it was being given to you. You know, that's not an act of the heart. But then uh, Jenkins, the father of Dallas Jenkins, who's done The Chosen, has worked with Mormons and everything on that, uh, or uh, financially anyway, is his dad was a co-writer with with uh, Tim LaHaye of the, that series, you know, the Left Behind series. And his site online for years, I mean, he says the question comes up, can believers take the mark of the beast and still be saved? And he cites the doctrine once saved, always saved, and says, well, if you have the seal of God in your forehead, if you take the mark of the beast, it can't erase that seal. So really, he's basically saying there's no concern there. That's a lie from the pit of hell, guys. Amen. The Bible says anyone, just read Revelation 14, anyone who takes the mark of the beast will be tormented with fire and brimstone, and there'll be no rest for them day and night forever and ever. And more and more of these guys are teaching that you can take the mark of the beast. You know, uh, even John MacArthur has said, if you take the mark of the, if you already have the mark of the beast, you could repent later, and and God will forgive you. Yet the Scripture says again that anyone who takes it is damned. Doesn't show people repenting later. That's the thing in Revelation when you take the mark of the beast, you're digging your feet so deep in the ground. You're saying, you're basically making a choice that you want nothing to do with God. And it'll be in the context of all this light that God's given you, the angels flying through the midheaven, don't take the mark. Or that's the one who says you'll be damned. It's a prophecy that they'll all be damned. So how could people be saved and it not become a false prophecy after they take it? Because it says everyone that takes it will be damned. And by the way, it's like Pharaoh, where they harden their hearts, right? There was no turning back at a certain point. That's what happens when you take the mark of the beast. You've hardened your heart so much that you won't want to turn back. So it's important, guys. Uh, guess what? Things are getting crazy right now, right? They're really getting crazy. So I thought it's interesting. Some of these questions are end times questions is you guys need to make sure that you say right now in your heart, by the grace of God, and I'll pray. I'll pray, Lord, and pray this way. Lord, help me never deny Christ. Because in that series, it has people claiming, following the Antichrist taking the mark of the beast so they could buy or sell, but really they're still serving Jesus. In the book series. And when the Antichrist is there, they're praising him with their lips, but in their hearts they're saying, I don't really follow him. Can we do that? Can we say, I'll take the mark of the beast to buy or sell, but God knows my heart. And I'll praise the Antichrist outwardly, but God knows deep down I really love him. That's, that's a coward's way out, man. That's a coward's way out. And that book, that series, created a slippery slope to put Christians in a mindset to create a bunch of cowards is what I believe it did. Okay? And I speak so strongly about this issue because I believe it's an eternal issue. If you take the mark of the beast, man, you're doomed forever and ever. 
So we want to make sure you encourage your family members. You want to make sure you don't take the mark of the beast. But right now you have maybe, if not millions, hundreds of thousands of Christians are writing all kinds of salvation messages to their family members so when they get raptured, they'll find them. Okay, I, now you wonder why you just found my clothes here, but I'm gone. It's because I've been raptured. Now you need to turn to Jesus. And it's just setting them up for a fall because they're going to be here too if it happens in our lifetime. Okay, so the next question. Uh, let me see what time it is. Okay, we're good for a little bit. Uh, this was a simple question uh, Chad sent me from our Good Fight family. Is there a Jezebel spirit? Is there a Jezebel spirit? Uh, now, the Bible doesn't speak specifically and say there is a Jezebel spirit. There's no one verse that says that. But you hear somebody sometimes when you have, you know, something going on in the fellowship and there's, you know, say, uh, you know, somebody who's incredibly manipulative, you know, and uh, they'll sometimes refer to that as a, a Jezebel a spirit. And, but where you don't see that in Scripture, the term a Jezebel spirit, you do see Jezebel becomes a name that's symbolic of those who were like Jezebel. Or at least one person that was like Jezebel. Giving us a precedent that there is a, and I don't know that there's a, a specific Jezebel spirit. One, I believe there's many demonic entities that seek to play churches that same way. Okay, so there's probably, I, would, I think you, it might be better to say there's Jezebel spirits, you know. Because I don't believe there's just one spirit. Because guess what? There's all kinds of demonic spirits. And, uh, but in 1 Kings 18, you read about Jezebel. She was a queen. She was the wife of King Ahab, who was a very, very wicked uh, king. Uh, she was a witch. We're told that she was a witch. She was very uh, calculating and very manipulative. And she was full of hate for God's people. She, you know... Uh, wanted to destroy God's prophet Elijah. Uh, you might say that Hamas has some of those spirits working within them right now as they attack Israel, uh, but uh, it's hard to say specifically what spirits are doing what. We do know that there's a lot of demonic entities that imitate what Satan did in Jezebel uh, throughout church history. But it's interesting, uh, she tried to kill Elijah. Uh, she was promoting idolatry. But it's interesting because Jesus addresses a church, right? In the New Testament, one of the seven churches, and he talks about a woman they have there. Listen to this, verse 20. He warns about this woman that they're allowing, I don't know that she was pastoring the church, but she was definitely teaching there as a prophetess. And we read, uh, but I have this against you, that you tolerate. In fact, go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. Make sure, so you can see it, because we're uh, turning to a few scriptures here. Revelation chapter 2. Uh, verse 20. Revelation 2. And we're talking to, he's talking to the church of Thyatira, where paganism has entered the church. We don't have time to get into the background too much here. But he says, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now this is several hundred years, you know, over a thousand years after the other Jezebel lived. So it's not the same Jezebel. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. I like how the King James says that I gave her space to repent. 
I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. I think I believe that's talking about her spiritual children. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and her hearts, and will give to each one according to to your deeds. By the way, he quotes the Old Testament where it says that Yahweh is the one who searches the hearts and minds and gives according to people's deeds. But Jesus says, I, I am him. It's a great scripture for the deity of Christ, by the way. Jesus is God. Amen. And in verse 24, but I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, and I'm sure she didn't call them the deep things of Satan. She probably called them the deep things of God. But Jesus is saying, he's calling them the deep things of Satan because that's what they are. As they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Now, some are thinking, man, this Jezebel, she's a lot like that other Jezebel. And they're thinking, you think the church would get a clue, a, a prophetess that's teaching people sexual sin and idolatry, and her name's Jezebel. You think they would say, wait a minute, is this her name? Man, we should, she should be suspect. But her name probably wasn't Jezebel. Okay. Her name probably wasn't Jezebel. Uh, that's not something parents, you know, name their kids very often after what happened in, in biblical times. But she's probably a false prophetess that uh, the, now Jesus is giving her the moniker, giving her the name Jezebel, because she what? Is acting like who? Jezebel. So that's what's going on there, I believe. And the point is, is some would say, okay, based on this, there is a Jezebel spirit. I would say based on this, we do see that Satan uses Jezebel-type people, and there are probably demonic entities. There are, I have no doubt in my mind you know, that there are demonic entities that are different than other demonic entities. There's principalities, there's powers, and so forth. There's the rulers of darkness of this world. Uh, one evil spirit, when it's cast out, it finds seven wicked spirits more wicked than himself. Shows there's degrees of wickedness as well. Uh, and so forth. And there's probably, uh, so there, uh, I don't have a hard time believing that, yeah, it's probably very likely. But to say a Jezebel spirit, I would say it's like a Jezebel type spirit. It's, you can say that maybe. Uh, there's Jezebel type spirits, maybe. Uh, but, I, but I think you're safest in saying that, hey, there's, you know, Satan will use women like he used Jezebel, who was seductive, murderous, hateful calculating, a persecutor, manipulative, all those things are the type of spirit we're seeing among this Jezebel and we see among the other Jezebel. So you could say there's a Jezebel spirit in the sense you're speaking in the spirit of, lean like that, because the word spirit can mean like that, amen? Or there's demonic entities that seek to do this in churches. And there's no doubt about that, guys. That's happened all over the place. I mean, right now, the greatest revival they say in the United States, they've been saying for years, is right up north at, at Bethel. Bethel music's everywhere. And Bill Johnson says that Bethel music, you know, uh, he uses music to, to under, to, to basically, I mean, he basically says he uses it in a way that he's able to slip by people's thinking processes and get their message across. I've been exposing that for years in Satan's kingdom. I'm like, man, these guys are admitting it in God's, you know, what they're doing to God's kingdom. But his wife is named Benny, not Benny Hinn, but after Benny Hinn. She changed her name to Benny after Benny Hinn. And it's Benny Johnson, you know, and... Uh, she's done things from going to graves to suck power out of them. There's pictures of her laying on graves. That's occultism, guys. That's necromancy. I'm sorry, that's wrong. She talks about commanding spirits. We're not supposed to command spirits. 
You know? Bethel songs, some say calling on angels. You don't call on angels, man. You call on living God, amen? You start calling on spirits and angels, you're going to open yourself up to spirits and fallen angels. We don't command them. She talks about how we, you can command these angels and so forth. And really creepy stuff. And I'm just touching the surface. And this is a Jezebel kind of thing, you know, entering into the church. So you need to be aware that you stick to the Word of God, amen, and you keep your eyes open in regard to what's going on out there, amen. Okay, so we need to make sure that we don't open up ourselves to this kind of deception, that's for sure, and watch out for the introduction of new agey, occultic type teachings, amen. Another question, Revelation chapter 11, uh, uh, are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, short question, are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation Absolutely, the two witnesses are discussed specifically in the book of Revelation, chapter 11. And uh, we're not going to take time to get into who exactly they are. And I'm going to have to just confess, I don't take a firm position on who exactly they are. Some people say it's Moses, and it's, or it's Elijah and Enoch. Elijah and Enoch. Why? Well, because Elijah was taken, right, or up in a chariot. And Enoch was, the Bible says he was, and then he was not. So they're both gone, and they both never died. Therefore, they're going to come back because it's appointed man no once to die, but after this a judgment. So those two are going to come back. And, I'm, and I say, hmm, you know, Elijah was taken up in a chariot, you know, but who says his body didn't die, right? Enoch was and he was not, but they just disappeared. How do we know he didn't die? You know, it's not real clear on that. And Jesus said, flesh and blood, he made it very clear that no man has yet ascended to heaven. He said that except the Son of Man. He was the first one to heaven. Nobody could go to heaven until Jesus paid for our sins. Amen? So that's not real clear. Some will say Elijah and Moses because, well, Moses did die. So do you have a reincarnation of Moses? I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, he did die. So is his spirit assume a physical body that's not really his? I have a hard time with that, personally. Uh, but the miracles are a lot like what Elijah and Moses did. So some will say, but it's hard to get Moses there. But then Elijah and Moses both appeared to Jesus to talk about his death, right? Not, they, weren't, they didn't get reincarnated, but they somehow, and the disciples, the apostles, recognized them as a team, together, talking about Jesus, about the death that he would accomplish. Remember Peter said, whoa, Lord, we got to, you know, build some tabernacles in memory of what's happening here. Instead of taking it in, realizing he's supposed to listen, and, you know, the Father speaks to Peter, you know, <laughs> Listen to my son, you know. And uh, the father and the son were so patient with Peter. Amen. Aren't you happy that God's patient with you? Because we've had our, how many have had Peter moments where you just say something and you didn't think it all through or you just didn't see the whole story yet and you just say something? You know, I've done that a lot, you know. I've, you know, too many times I'm like, man, I should have gotten more information before I just said, you know, why didn't you feed the dog, you know, <laughs> or whatever, just little things even, right, sometimes, you know. Uh, it goes both ways, but I'll pick on myself, you know, because <laughs> I've definitely done that. So, uh, but Peter does that a lot in spiritual context, you know. And uh, so some will say, okay, because they're there. And, and you know what? If, if I had to pick two human beings that already lived, I'd probably pick those two based on that, them being a team. And based on the miracles were a lot like the miracles that they did. I can see that as a possibility. But at the same time, I'm saying, now the Bible does talk about Elijah. who will come back before the great and terrible day of the Lord, right? But when Jesus, when John the Baptist came, Jesus said, if you receive this, this was the Elijah that was to come. When John the Baptist said, are you Elijah? He said, no. He wasn't literally reincarnation Elijah. But he, Jesus talked about how John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Do you understand? 
So I personally believe it'll be two men that will probably not be Enoch, Elijah, or Moses. It'll probably be two men that God uses radically. I don't know that for sure. It's conjecture. So I don't dig my feet deep on anything that I can't prove from Scripture. I can just give you conjecture and admit it's just conjecture. Uh, now there are some that believe it'll be the church and it'll be Israel corporately standing together in the last days in Israel during the time of the Antichrist and finally defeated at the, uh, uh, by the beast and then Jesus comes back shortly after that. That's actually a very, very interesting view. Viewpoint, you know. Although, uh, because when you think of Israel right now, when you think of what's going on there, that the two witnesses are corporate. Although, I struggle with that a little bit because in the Old Testament, there's two witnesses, right? There's Joshua and Zerubbabel, a civic leader and a spiritual leader. And, they're, and that's all with, the, with the, you know, the pipes and the oil and the lights and the menorah and everything. And the language that's used there is picked up in chapter Rev- Revelation, chapter 11. And when it's picked up in Revelation chapter 11, it's language that speaks of Zerubbabel and Joshua, where it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. But how is this mountain going to come down? How are they going to rebuild the temple? And there's a lot of, the re- temple has to be rebuilt. It sounds to me like God may use two specific people. And it may be a religious leader, and it may be a civic leader that work together to perhaps get, you know, when the temple is being rebuilt, they stand up for the one true God and point out that the Antichrist is evil, right? And then they're finally put to death. So to me, the corporate thing doesn't follow the typology, although we don't interpret Scripture based on typology, but it does help us, it does give us insights at times, amen? So I don't want to get you dizzy, you know? I'm just spouting off some views that I didn't write down, but just to earn my heart when I think this thing over a little bit. It's something, and if you share your view, I'll be open to your view, you know? But one thing will happen when we see it, you know, when prophecy is fulfilled, then it's 2020, amen? The main thing you need to keep your mind, there will be two witnesses, thank the Lord, amen, that the Antichrist can't kill for 42 months. Just like the, the angel in the mid-heavens, he can't kill him at all. And then believers are getting put to death, but God's going to have his witnesses during that time, amen? So that's exciting stuff. Okay, uh, I know the question was real simple. Are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation? Yes, chapter 11, but I had to add some things to that. Uh, this is from Brand New in Christ, the, the person's uh, title. Uh, is tithing, is tithe, are tithes and offerings the same thing or two separate things? What does the Bible say about them? Love you guys and God bless you. Uh, technically speaking, tithes and offerings are two different things. Tithes are 10%. Uh, your offerings are what you give beyond your tithes. But this expression tithes and offering has in a colloquial sense, been used oftentimes for just giving in general. So it means different things to different people. Some look at it tithes. I'm the 10% I give to the church of my income, and the offerings are what I give beyond that to either the church or others, you know. That's how many people uh, view that. Uh, offering them would be anything beyond 10%. You want to know biblically where, you know, what the Bible says. Uh, go to Malachi. If you're Italian, you could go to Malachi. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. And this is a very interesting passage. This is where the tithe becomes really clear. The Jews actually gave way more than 10% because the 10% was their religious giving to uh, the priests to support the Levites because the Levites were in ministry. And how would they get income? Because they weren't getting income uh, just out of the sky, but God used his people uh, to 
support the work of the ministry there. And then they gave a percentage of taxes beyond that, uh, which is like over 20% total. Uh, but we read in verse 8, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. This is God talking. Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, uh, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before they're ripe, uh, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Now it's interesting because Israel, even though many of them don't tithe, and many of them do, uh, many of the Orthodox for sure, uh, many of the believers in Israel do, but uh, uh, it's a fruitful land, you know, compared to the rest of the Middle East. Pretty, pretty crazy, huh? You know, a lot of that's God's grace and mercy and blessing. Amen. Because certainly most of Israel isn't following uh, the law. Uh, now, it's important to understand here, the Lord does say, test me in this. I was just uh, talking with, uh, you know, Lisa and I, you know, uh, with uh, our financial advisor. Really great guy. Uh, 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 we don't have much money, but the little money we have, it's like, Lord, we want to try to be wise with this. And, uh, and we've had him for years. He's a Christian uh, from, I think it was at Biola. He graduated at Biola and so forth and has a lot of people from Master's College and stuff on his staff. Great people, man. Love the Lord and uh, really neat. Uh, and he is a strong believer in tithing, you know. And Lisa and I, most of our Christian walk have, have tithed. Some parts, sometimes we haven't. Some don't believe pastors should be tithing because they're like, they say, oh, well, you're like the priesthood, you know, and so forth. But I believe all Christians should be in the habit of giving. Amen. And there's sometimes when we've been able to give steadily, sometimes when we've struggled more, you know. But I'm just being honest with you as your pastor is uh, because I, I personally, this is my personal conviction, and we, I, we, him and I talked back and forth on it. And pastors, it's deadly for a pastor to say this to a church a lot of people think. Because most pastors say you have to tithe and they'll read these passages and they'll tell the church, many of the pastors will tell the church they're under a curse if they don't tithe. And if they don't give 10%, they're under a curse. And my problem with that is that this was under what? What were the Jews under? They were in the law of Moses. Okay? And there's a bunch of laws if you don't keep, you're under a curse. Amen? Now, well-meaning pastors, for the most part, I think some of them just, the finance aren't coming in, so they threaten the church, they're under a curse, they use this passage. But if, if uh, somebody gets a tattoo, and it says not to get a tattoo in the Old Testament, do they tell them that you're, they're under a curse? No. If they have a shirt that's mixed with cotton and wool, do they say you're under a curse? No. If they eat bacon, do they tell them they're under a curse? No. If they don't circumcise their children, do they say they're under a curse? No. So I don't believe we could be selective and put people under condemnation if they don't give exactly 10%. Because we're not under the law. We're under, not under the old covenant. We're under the what? The new covenant. Now, that's dangerous for a pastor to say because a lot of people are tithing, and they, they're convicted about it, and then all of a sudden they say, oh, maybe I don't have to give 10%, and it can hurt a church. But guess what? I trust in the living God. We trust in the living God in this fellowship to meet our needs according to his riches and glory by speaking the truth. We don't just speak the truth when it's comfortable. That's why we're post-trib, right? 
That's why we say you have to continue in the faith. Amen? Because we say, what does the scripture say? Not what's popular out there. You know? And, but at the same time, uh, at the same time, well, what does the New Testament say about giving? Guess what? When you go to the New Testament, it sounds a lot like tithing. What exact percentage is? I don't know. But let's think this through a little bit. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I want to show you. Uh, it's very important to understand that your giving should be systematic. It should be systematic. It should be something that you're purposing in your heart. It should be something that you plan. It shouldn't be willy-nilly, oh, do I have a couple nickels to give God? You know? It should be also sacrificial, according to the Scripture. So we read 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says in verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so this is something he's done elsewhere, so uh, do you also on the what? First day of every week. And by the way, the first day of the week was a work day in those days. Saturday was a day off, but not Sunday. Sunday was like our Monday. But the early church was meeting on the first day of the week early in the morning because Christ rose on the first day of the week. So on the first day of every week, some of you, does it say some of you? It says each one, amen? That's all of us. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. Now this tells us how we're to give. As he may what? As he may prosper. Isn't that what God did in the Old Testament? Give what? 10%. So if someone made 1,000 bucks, that would be 100 bucks. If someone made 10,000 bucks, say they made it in a month or whatever, that would be what? 1,000 bucks. Amen? So 10%. So made a million bucks, that would be $100,000. Give as he may prosper. I'm talking about if you were under the tithe which I don't believe that if someone doesn't tithe, they're under curse. Well, do you believe in tithes? I believe if it's voluntary, it's fine. But don't teach somebody they have to or put them under a curse. It, well, do you believe 10% is a good amount? Well, when you look at, he's talking to you uh, in, a, in a context, which is according to how you prosper, and that's what they did in the Old Testament, does it have to be exactly 10%? I don't think so. But it's sad if everybody goes down to 7% or 9 or whatever, because or 2, you know. We, we, we want to please God, amen? We want to be a blessing. And under the new covenant, we should be far more grateful and thankful than they were to the old covenant, amen? Because Jesus shed his blood for us. It says to give as he may what? So you're supposed to do it on the first day of the week. That's systematic. Each one's supposed to do it. And you're supposed to put it aside. I Meaning you're supposed to say, okay, this money's designated for this. And then he says as many as he may to give what way? As he may prosper. So that no collections be made when I come. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. But this I say, and by the way, Paul sets this up, and this is a great picture example of how churches could function that have similar needs. And we all have needs to help the poor uh, to, to reach the lost, right? To, in our case, they met at homes then because they weren't able to meet at buildings quite yet. It was the church was new. When they, as soon as the church could meet in buildings, they started meeting in buildings, by the way. You know, I, I'm a big fan of both, biblically. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says this. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully, he sows seeds bountifully, he'll also reap bountifully. Then he says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart. It's got to come from the heart. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. So God wants us to give from the heart. He wants to give because we, are, we want to bless God and we want to bless the kingdom and, and, and give money to God's kingdom. And he says, to, uh, to, God loves a cheerful giver. Now that's pretty cool. 
Now, I, I don't believe that if I don't give or you don't give 10%, we're not under a curse. But I do, love, I do love this, that if we do give, whatever percent God puts in our hearts, God loves it. I love that God loves. I love it when I see my children through the years and now my grandchildren share with others. It blesses my heart. I love it when they do things and they're thinking of the lost. That nothing that blesses my heart more than seeing you know, people you love already be Christ-like. Amen? God loves a cheerful. The Greek word uh, for cheerful there is the word from which we get the word hilarious. He loves a hilarious. Just a, someone, I, I want to bless. I want to, be, I want to live for God. I want to be a blessing. Somebody offered me a bunch of money to do an interview on Saturday. And, uh, and uh, too much money. I'm going to tell you the price for just an hour, hour and a half of work. I told the guy, I don't do, I just keep going until you've had enough. We went for almost four hours. He's like, you don't want to take a break yet? I'm like, no, I'm good, man. And then when he gave me the money, tried to give me the money, at first I wouldn't take it. I said, no, you know what? You just keep it, you know? I'm, I'm good, you know? And he kept saying no. He goes, I want you to have it, you know? I'm going to donate it either way. I'm, I want you to have this money. So, uh, you know, I thought, man, my wife will probably just love it because she can you know, go to the property tax, you know, which she's been talking about lately. I'm like, okay. I told him that. I said, okay, thank you, bro. So, because I do interviews all the time through the years, and I never charge. And I go speak at churches or other places through the years. I never, ever tell them they need to pay me. I just say, you know what? I'm flying up there, though. I need you to pay for the room and board, you know, because I don't have the money. A jet, you know, I was going to call. I won't have the money to do it, you know. And they, all, they always do that, you know. But uh, I never ask for money when I speak somewhere. Some people have, you know, a fee, 500 bucks, 1,000 bucks, 2,000 bucks if they speak someplace. And I don't believe in doing that personally. But I do believe strongly that we're supposed to give everything we have in some way to the Lord, amen? Our time, our talent, our treasure, amen? My whole life is giving to Jesus, okay? And uh, so in Romans 14, 12, we're going to be judged. It says, so then each one of us shall give account for him to himself, uh, I'm sorry, of himself to God, 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So yeah, when he says that we'll, we'll sow, if you sow sparingly, like you just a few seeds, you'll just get a few little plants. But if you sow abundantly, you'll get a big harvest, right? He says that in the context of Christian giving. That's true. Now, how that's misquoted, or I should say mistaught, is people say if you give this much to the Lord's work, you'll get this much money back. Well, that's not what it says. It doesn't say money back. It can come in a lot of ways. I mean, if God loves a cheerful giver, that means if I'm a giving guy, I'm going to be a cheerful guy. Amen? If I love to give of my time and my talent and treasure to, uh, to grow the kingdom of God, and God loves a cheerful giver, that means I'm cheerful because it's better to give than to receive, and it fits that I'd be joyful. If I'm miserly, I'd probably have a miserly heart, right? And the Holy Spirit will say yes and amen, or will encourage you to be a giving person, and you'll bear the fruit of the Spirit, love and peace and joy and all those wonderful things. So I believe a lot of times what we reap is way better than money. I mean, watch our video on the, on the, 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 uh, the celebrity video, The Devil Doesn't Want You to See, which has got over 200,000 views, and it keeps getting 1,000 or so a day. That thing's been just going and going because people are sharing it and stuff. Uh, and you'll see all these people that have all kinds of money, fame, and everything else. If you haven't seen that video, man, uh, I showed it in church, so most of you have probably seen it. you got to go home and just go to Good Fight Ministries and click that video because I had different people coming to me, man, every kid needs, the world needs to see this video because it shows you what a lie it is, the fame and the power and the, and the fortune doesn't bring you joy. It's Jesus that brings you joy, amen? So now when he says let each person give according to how he's prospered, you know, what would a Jewish guy be thinking maybe about giving according to how he's prospered? What percent might be in his mind, Paul's mind? 
10% might be in his mind, right? And then you could also point, which I, I think is important, before the law came, because Malachi's written what, to the people who are under the law, Abraham, who's the father of faith, gave to Melchizedek, who's a picture of Christ at the very least, if not a pre-incarnation of Christ, not, not, taking a, uh, not born in, in, but taking a, a Christophany appearance as a man. Uh, people debate those. I'm not, that's not the question we have today. That could be another question sometime. But uh, Abraham's give, how much, what percentage does Abraham give, the, at least the very least, the picture of Christ? What percentage? 10%. And Abraham's a, a picture of not one under the law, but one by grace through faith. Amen? His grandson Jacob, what percentage did he give? Do you remember? 10%. Same thing. So there's even that number before the law. So I'm saying if you're looking for a number, you're like, I, I have to have a concrete answer. It, I, and I want to give you a concrete answer because the New Testament doesn't give a specific percentage. But I'm saying if there is a concrete number that you're looking as a, with a precedence even before the law, uh, perhaps 10% is good to give to ministry. You know. But I will say this. Every one of us should be giving something to the Lord in his work. Amen. And we shouldn't be giving him the chump change and putting him last, amen? We should be making him a priority in our giving, amen? And it's, I just have to be honest with you, it's a family talk. You know, we have a bunch of brothers and sisters here. We have, I don't know, Steve, why do we pay a month for just the building? 13 grand or something? I don't know, something like that, Lisa. Lisa's giving me a thumbs up. 13 grand a month just for this building. And we shouldn't leave it all up to everybody else, amen? And then we have people like Levitical priests. We have people on full-time staff and you know what? Somebody was just asking me recently because people were talking about how hard people that work at Blessed Hope, the pastors, and, the, and also for the ministry, good fight. And I say, you know why? Because I only try to bring people on staff that are already you know, self-starters, that are motivated, you know, ultimately from the Lord, amen, that will work their tails off. If so I don't want to be the boss that has to get under them and say, what are you doing for the Lord lately? You know, hey, you're working for the Lord. Hey, and I make, of course, if someone's slacking off or something, I'll, I'll say, hey, bro, you know, I'll encourage him or, but it's very rare that that even happens, you know? you know? And I don't dare say that to my wife, you know? So, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, she's an incredibly hard worker, you know? So it, it works out really well. So, by the way, if you're giving to ministry, by the grace of God, I, f I feel bad because hundreds of billions, perhaps, if not at least hundreds of millions, but I'd say billions and billions and billions of money is given to all these false teachers through the years. That's so heartbreaking. Amen. But I praise God that we're in ministry. That we're actually seeing all kinds of fruit, you know? Amen. We have almost 200,000 people. Pretty soon it'll be 200,000 people. Then hopefully a quarter of a million eventually. Just subscribers to our Good Fight channel. And these are people, a lot of these people that are subscribers are witnessing, right? And we're a ministry that's seen a lot of fruit. A lot of people come to Christ around the world, you know? And there's people being touched. Kevin Vizinus from Arcadia. Kevin, you get brought up a lot lately, bro. You're new and you're sitting in the front, so you're in a terrible position there. But good fight's reaching so many people, amen? It's a beautiful thing, you know, what God's doing, you know? So, and I heard, how often have you heard me give a message on money? First, Jim, how long have you been with us? 95 years. You're older than I thought, bro. That gray beard should give you away, man. Since 1995, that's 23, that's 28 years, almost 30 years, he's heard six messages. Jim would probably know because Jim has been the main guy doing our tape catalog for so many of those years, you know. So f five or six messages. Uh, and I don't know if you called this a message on it. It came up and it was one of the Q&As. So, so that's probably, probably not enough, you know. I probably should teach on it more. But I think that's the last question. It doesn't matter because guess what? 
Oh, there's one more question. We'll save it for another time because I'm looking at the clock and I'm already a few minutes over. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Father. We pray that we'd be good stewards, that each of us would give to your work and that uh, we would uh, make sure that we take care of the ministry here. But Father, we pray in your son's name that you would help us to give according to how we prospered. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to give joyfully, knowing that we're serving you, not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but treasures in heaven, Father, where your son said, neither uh, uh, moth nor rust can corrupt and thieves can't break in and steal, Father. And uh, as your son said, that we can't serve both God and money. We either hate the one and love the other or love the one and hate the other. Father, we pray that we would serve you and only you, Father. And we pray that we would use money responsibly, not only to pay our bills, but also to grow your kingdom. And Father, we pray in your Son's name. We thank you, Father, that you're the greatest giver ever, that you so loved us that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If there's anybody listening by way of live stream, by way of internet, uh, that's here today that doesn't know you, that they know that the main thing they need to do is right now receive your Son. For your word says, as many as received him, you gave the right to become the children of God, Father. And we know that we're doomed for all eternity if we do not bend the knee to you. Father, help us to repent, turn from wickedness to Christ and put our trust in him so we can have eternal life. In your son's name we pray, amen.